Cool. Welcome to the Stephen Shields Radio Show. I've got Tim Brewer back on. How are you? I'm well, thanks, mate. Good to have you back on the show. What have you been working on uh, for the last week? Hang on, mate. My emails just popped up and got in the way. Okay. Uh, uh, what have I been doing? Uh, I'm um, currently, my focus is uh, getting these pieces that I've written, these love letter pieces that um, I've written, solo piano pieces, uh, getting them under my fingers so I can go and record them in a little while, hopefully in the next month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already recorded some and I've had a great response on Facebook and uh, I've already gone and recorded. Yeah, I think I already said that. I've already gone and recorded some and yeah, I just want to kind of get it out, get the get a CD out there because I've had such a good response. I'd like to kind of capitalise on that. Good on you. And, uh, that's, yeah, go on. that's good. Um, you plan to put your work on Spotify or Apple Music or you go on the uh, CD? Uh, look, I'm, I'm old school. Because yep. I'm 63 and uh, I am aware of everything. Uh, I still buy CDs. I like CDs. There will mm-hmm. definitely be a physical CD. I haven't thought about Spotify and so on. Um, I have a mixed. Fe- I've mixed feelings about Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people that I respect do go on there. Some other people I know kind of boycott it. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I mean, there's a there's a label called. Um, I'm sort of jumping the gun a little bit here, but there's a local label called um, Rufus that's been around mm-hmm. for a long time, a jazz label, a, sort of a boutique label. And there's a guy in um, in Melbourne, a wonderful pianist called Tim Stevens, who, uh, who's with that label. And uh, when I've got the product, when I've got the, the tunes recorded, I thought I might contact the guy that I know that runs that label a little bit to see whether he's interested. But ha- apart from that, a lot of people talk about Bandcamp as being Mm. Um, one of the better ones in terms of you getting the full uh, income from the mm-hmm. from the product, and I think you can do some st- that has kind of a streaming um, option as well. I, I'm not sure how that works, mm. but um, there. I mean, I'm just focused on getting product first, and then all that'll all come after. Mm. Have you thought about doing royalty-free music where you sell it for the one-off fee and um, and that's it? That's a paycheck for you. Have you looked at that? No, I don't. Uh, why don't you clarify that for me? It's not something I'm familiar with. Yeah, so for a movie or a film, uh, your track, you put a price of a grand and you sell it to the director and, you know, they got the rights to your music forever, but at least at least it's a paycheck. A lot of the film composers do that as well, sell it uh, for a one-off price. Have you looked at that that route for yourself? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that, actually, um, that stuff. But, I mean, I suppose it just depends on whether anybody would be interested enough to want to pay me mm. $1,000 for it. I mean, I think, I think without wanting to be immodest, I think the mm. pieces are really good. But, um, I, you know, that would, if somebody offered me that, I'd have to then weigh it all mm. up at the time. I, know, I do know about that because... Being the age that I'm at, I've spoken to a lot of musicians over a long period of time about that whole situation. And my brother, who you probably know is a saxophone player, lived in London for, for near on 20 years. And how I many still gets, as far as I know, he still gets royalty checks for jingles and mm. recordings he things, recordings and things that he did back uh, in the 80s and more the 90s. Mm. Um, because the union is still very, very strong over there. 
Whereas, um, I mean, I, you know, I know enough people here in the industry to know that I'm, I'm not, I think in, to, it tends to, I think even quite a while ago, I heard the fact that people would write a, a, a theme for a TV show and just get a one-off fee. And then from then on, they could play it as often as they'd like and the, and the, the composer wouldn't get any extra money. Mm. Um, so I don't know really what that landscape's like these days. I suspect uh, that given things like Spotify, which is personally feel like that it's, it's kind of devalued music. I know there's two sides to that and I have spoken to some younger uh, mm. musicians that are a little bit positive on Spotify. Um, but, um, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of, uh, the, the general landscape for creatives is from what I can see, I, have, I read a reasonable amount about it, mm. is that corporate entities are trying to get the material that creatives put out for, for next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, my suspicion would be that the, the overall landscape for, for for that sort of thing would be to try and get out of it the, for, for, for the people in power. They'll be trying to get out of it as, less, as little money as possible. Because mm, the uh, music industry's changed so much. I think in the old days you, you had to have a record label in order to be successful. Now you can do it independently. But the royalty check pay. I got my first ever royalty. That was three dollars I made. Yeah. I used to, um, back in the 90s, when I wrote, well, I mean, I still, I've written music for a long time, but back in those days, um, I was playing around the place with um, a few little bands where I were playing my pieces and I would always submit a, a, whatever it is, the return to APRA, which I'm a member of, and I would get a small check. Once I did do a recording of one of my pieces uh, with a band and the guy came up and said, oh, we'd really like to use that on a TV show. And I think I got $150. This was back in the mid-90s or something Mm -hmm. because they played it for a a minute or something as background music on the TV show. Um, But yes, and I I just haven't bothered with those royalty returns or whatever you call them uh, Mm. with APRA, although I probably should because... not that that's been happening much during COVID, but uh, prior to that, I would I'd be doing a lot of solo piano gigs where I'd play my pieces, but it's just something that would be, the income was so minimal it just didn't really register with me to to try and sort of follow that up and create a very tiny income stream, as you've mentioned. Mm. Yes. Yeah, now, right. you, you're recording on CDs. Now, do you have to pay to get your, your work on a CD and distribute it? How does that work? Because Spotify... You've got a you got a distributor and you just put an MP3 track. What's it like uh, recording on CDs? Well, I've only ever put one CD out under my own name, and that uh-huh. was in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. And at that time, I um, knew uh, a guy who I still know, David Seidel, who was um, a, a musician from Adelaide. He had his own label called La Brava, and I knew another friend who had uh, put a, a, a CD out with him and he had, because his uh, late sister Janet Seidel, who's a great jazz singer and pianist, uh, had quite a, a um, uh, an audience uh, in Japan. They, it, it, my friend sold a lot of CDs to Japan. Anyway, it was, it was a, a label that I'd heard good things about, that being mm-hmm. one of them, and I knew David. So I approached him and what ended up happening is I paid for all of the recordings mm. 
And then I submitted a, I went and got it mixed and mastered all under my own, uh, uh, all paid for by myself. And then I went, when David agreed to release it on the Labrava label, I just submitted the final master and then he took care of all of the mm. costs of uh, producing. I paid the person for the artwork, but he paid for all of the, the mass producing mm. of the, uh, I don't know how many, probably 500 or something. Mm. And then I, uh, I paid him back for that. Obviously, all of that's uh, claimable on tax. Now, obviously, that was two, that was twelve or thirteen years ago. So um, things have changed somewhat. Um, I know you can self-release. My brother um, mm. that I mentioned before, Jason, I was on a CD um, that he put out called. Uh, I was in a band called Hammerhead uh, a few years ago, and he self-released that one. Uh, I'm on that. I I just got paid for the recording session for that. I don't know how it all worked out for him. He would have copped the costs of that and then recouped them through CDs, you know, his physical mm. CD sales. Uh, and he's since put out another one with a, a revamped version of Hamhead that I'm not part of, that I know has been self-released. And I think he's done pretty much the same thing. So uh, as I said before, all of that stuff is stuff that I'm yet to explore. I'm just just my my job is basically to get the product down and get something mm. that I'm happy with, and then all of that's just logistics, really. Mm. No, but, um, yeah, yeah it's always a good achievement when you when you release a CD or an album. You know, it's a lot of work that goes into it as well. Of course. Yeah. How much? How much? Uh, you, do you do a lot of rehearsals for your pieces, or do you just you improvise for your jazz? Uh, CDs. What's what's your process? Well, it depends on the project. I mean, the pro my, the, the, the CD that I put out on my own name uh, in, on the Labrava label was uh, a, a classic uh, jazz quartet CD where I had original pieces, um, and it followed the, the the standard sort of jazz format in that um, mm. you play the pieces. Um, and there might be bits within the uh, renderings of the melodies that uh, improvised to varying degrees. As an introduction on one, I only heard a snippet of it yesterday, actually, when I was just culling through some old CDs and trying to work out what to keep and what to throw away and listen to the beginning of one of these tracks. So there's, there's, I mean, the normal thing for a jazz piece in very simple terms is you play the, the structure of the piece and then you improvise over that, the chordal structure. So it's based mainly uh, based around that. And as I said, you know, some introductions and things would have been improvised. And then of course the accompaniment and the way you play within the, the ensemble is also improvised, except for the melody sections, depending that they, they, there can be some improvisation, some playing of set parts. Um, so if I was preparing, you know, when I prepared for that CD, obviously I would have, um, made sure I can play my accompaniment parts to the uh, the ensemble sections. And then I, I, I remember practicing very much, you know, for a long time on uh, improvising over the chordal structures of those so that when I came down, when it came around to the recording, I was uh, comfortable with them and, um, you know, felt confident that I could pull off a good solo. Mm. With um, this current project, these are written pieces uh, I consciously wanted to write some pieces. I love 
improvised music is my favorite thing. That's why I'm a jazz player. Mm-hmm. But I also love classical music and I love the idea of being able to write a piece and have it perfect if you can, if you feel like it's perfect. Get something and be able to uh, edit it and hone it and spend a long time on the details. That's what I do with the, the, the pieces that I've written for my ensemble, but then you improvise on them. Whereas these mm. pieces, I wanted to just have them standalone piano pieces that were fixed in pretty much every detail. There's occasionally just at, at, at the beginnings and the ends, if I do some flourishes or things like that, they're, they're a little bit loose, but in general, 99% of them are, are written. That said, there's one of them that I wrote that felt like with my background in writing ensemble pieces that are to be improvised upon, there was one that felt like it lent itself to that. So I think I might, I might uh, do a little bit of improvisation on one of them. But in, by, by and large, what I'm doing with preparation for, those, for that recording is just simply playing the pieces. Mm. But I've actually had a, quite an interesting experience um, when I went in to record, excuse me, mm-hmm. I've done two sessions uh, that have um, resulted in the, in, in some of the, in, in having some, some versions of the tracks that I'm happy to release, as I mentioned earlier. But I found that um, even though I was comfortable playing these pieces at home, then when I got into the studio, I ended up getting a little nervous, probably because the pieces are, fixed and it's the same as playing a classical piece it's a very different uh, discipline to playing an improvised piece where you know the melody and you can depending on the piece you will probably play the melody in a fairly free and improvised way then you improvise over the whole Mm. structure as I've said even if it's solo piano it's still essentially the same idea as I mentioned with the ensemble Uh, whereas so that's that's what a jazz musician does and that's what I've been trained to do and I've been doing for 40 plus years but um when it came time to uh, play these pieces, I, I found that I would be making mistakes I'd never made before mm. in the studio just because of the pressure. So uh, as I mentioned before, I've with these love letter pieces, I've um, been putting up clips of myself playing them on Facebook. And I found, and I put, only posted one last week, and that's the most, not by design, but that ended up being the one that took me the most time to practice and it was most difficult technically and uh so what i found is that i got a similar experience happening when i would put i had just used a little canon camera that gave me a slightly better quality um video than a than an iphone which is what a lot of people use of course Mm. um i went through a similar thing where i would just start making mistakes uh through the process because i was putting pressure on myself so i've learned and I'm, I'm very confident that, that the process of having to prepare those pieces for my Facebook posts will stand me in good stead when I get to the studio because I've realised, even though I've said it to students many, many times over the years, that when you have a, a performance like an exam or something, that you are going to be, uh, it's going to be in a, like a pressure situation. You, you kind of have to, you have to have done your homework 110 or 120%. So that's kind of what I've learned through this is that um, these pieces, if I want to be able to play them in, 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 with a, pr- a bit of pressure, they just I just have to know them so well mm. that even if I do feel a bit of pressure, I still am able to come up with the goods. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. And I feel like they're, they're sitting 
well under the fingers by and large. It's just, I just on the heels of what I've just said, I'm just going to keep playing them until I feel like I can go in there and it should be a fairly straightforward process. What about if you've got a chain, if the you've got to play it in a different key, do you play it all in, do you do it in every key, the same song? No, I don't quite know why you would ask me that, although there is, uh, <laughs> these pieces are just written, there they are. It'd be the yep. same as if you were going to record the Bark Well-Tempered Clavier. I don't know why you would take this first prelude in C and go and play it in C sharp or B or something, unless you wanted to do it for an interesting exercise, which would be interesting because, of course, pieces sound different in different keys. I've so, seen um, Bach, actually with Bach, has uh, in some clarinet books been uh, transposed in different keys too. Now, that does asking, happen, yes. Yep, yeah, go on. I was asking you that because a jazz player, you, uh, you, you've got to sometimes, you've got to play in a different key. Uh, this is true. And I do have a partial answer to you, which is, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, as I said, for the for these set love letter pieces, that simply won't be the case because there'll be no point in it. But the reality is that when you're playing jazz standards, which is the meat and potatoes of most jazz players' uh, practice, and I don't mean practice at home, I mean their performance practice outside when they're performing, uh, yeah. is that you will get asked to play well-known standards in many different keys because, of course, you often end up working with singers that want them in different keys. Mm. That was something in the past I used to struggle with a little bit, but the, the more experienced I've got and the more singers I've worked with and uh, situations I've been in, I've become much better at, at uh, being able to transpose them in my head. Sometimes I I cop out and grab the iReal app that's so prevalent these days and change the key, but I do try and challenge myself to uh, commit them to memory, even if I do that, even on the performance to if I, if I might just want to put it there just to be safe and rather safe than sorry, try and, you know, get through one or two choruses, which is a cycle of the piece and try and, you know, get my eyes away from the chords. But the other, so I'm, I'm much better at transposing and that is true that you do have to play these um, standards in lots of different keys. So I can kind of see the, the angle you're coming from, but, but it's actually quite interesting to me in that I've had a much longer uh, recording project underway and that's the project I decided to embark upon after the CD that I recorded or I released in 2007 and 8 that I said earlier and I thought I want to really want to do a piano solo a solo piano album along you know a standard standard jazz piano uh, solo piano CD so I began working on it I worked on arrangements and here I am 13 years later still working on them which sounds probably pretty ridiculous but um I was particularly fussy about making sure that I had a really good left hand because mm. um, though for some people, solo piano, solo jazz piano might just sound like, oh yeah, if you're you know, a jazz pianist and that's something you would do, but it's actually a really pretty challenging thing to do. And anybody, anybody that talks about it and knows about it says, it, says that. Mm. And uh, the, the other thing is that if you've, if you've come along the path that I have, and you've listened to the greats that do that, namely Keith Jarrett and uh, Brad Meldow and uh, Fred Hirsch and uh, Bill Evans, even though Bill Evans himself didn't admit, didn't claim he didn't think he was that great a, a solo jazz pianist. He's actually, he was a very beautiful solo jazz pianist, even though perhaps not quite as uh, comprehensively across the idiom as those other people I mentioned. 
But anyway, what I'm saying is that, and I'll get to the thing about the keys in a minute, because it's quite fascinating. Um, the standard that I was aiming for was of course the highest possible standard, because that's all I've ever been into music for, is to just be as good as I can be. And as the years ticked by and I continued working on these pieces, I, I did go into the studio some probably maybe eight years, seven, seven or eight years ago, maybe it wasn't that long, six years ago or something. And I put them all down, but I just wasn't happy enough with them, just given the standard that I've talked about that I'm trying to achieve. But I, I felt that it was a good, a good thing to do. I learned a lot and I thought, you know, these, these arrangements and the whole concept I had was great. I just need to keep chugging along. So here we are. X amount of years later, I'm still, I feel like I'm getting much, much closer now. But my point was that uh, at one point, my mentor, Mike Nock, said, oh, do you play them in different keys? Because, you know, he was, he's been chipping away at me at the whole time. Why haven't you put your CD out, man? You know, mm. and I've been going, oh, it's just, man, I'm just, it's just, I'm just not happy with it. It's just got to be right, you know, and uh, have you tried playing them in different keys? Oh, okay. And one of the things that you can imagine if you're an improviser and you're playing the same song in the same key over and over and over and over and over again, as I have with a number of these pieces to get them uh, to a level that I'm happy with, is you, you, get stuck, you can get stale. Mm. So um, I've actually written a little blog about this that I might, I might put out, but it's been, a, it's been a very interesting, though arduous pr uh, uh, process doing this. But at some point I decided, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, so I started putting them in different keys and that has been just so, so good. Mm. Uh, so one of the main pieces I've been working on, I can play it in five, six, seven keys. Mm. Uh, and another one of the pieces I've been working on, I can play that in three or four. But what, what, so that was going on and it's been really given these pieces, it's given me a new lease of life on these pieces in the sense that I can, play them in other keys and still um, use that practice to develop the, uh, the skills that I'm trying to, to, to develop on the, the, the piece in the original key, uh, enable me to continue to get that raised a level without getting stale. Mm. And it cross-pollinates, it's great. You know, you find yourself, if you play, um, you, and I'm talking about the improvisation. I'm not working on the arrangement, but on the uh, on the improvisation, um, you know, I'll, I'll, because you're in a different key, it sounds different, it feels different on the instrument. So you you come up with you play different ideas and different patterns and things, and then you come back to your original key, and it's like that it it fertilizes or nourishes or nurtures that. Mm. So it's a, it's been great. And the other thing that's that that has uh, pushed me along that path has been um, watching uh, a wonderful jazz pianist called Dan Tepfer, T-E-P-F-E-R, who's a great New York jazz pianist who's been doing a lot of live weekly live streams throughout the whole of COVID. And uh, I, um, I'd known of him because he's recorded the Goldberg Variations by Bach and improvised on them, so I was aware of him. Mm. But uh, somehow I come across one of his live streams and just really took a, took a shine to his style. And one of the things he did in one of the earlier uh, live streams is to play uh, the, the well-known, um, well, it's not actually not written by Miles Davis, it's attributed to Miles Davis called Solar. It's actually written by um, a guitar player, what's his name? 
gone out of my head for the moment now. It'll probably come to me. But anyway, well-known jazz song called Solar. And he just said, okay, here we go. I'm going to play Solar in all 12 keys. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, wow, that's amazing. And he did it. And then that sort of lodged in my mind. Uh, Chuck Wayne is a guitar mm-hmm. player. And it's like some of these pieces that were attributed to particular jazz musicians. Uh, it's becoming more widespread to actually acknowledge the original composer. Anyway, um, and then he, in subsequent live streams, he would say to the audience, okay, I uh, got any requests? And they'd say, oh, do this song. And he'd go, okay, what key? What time signature? And I mean, this really was inspiring to me. So he ended up playing Someone to Watch Over Me, the Gershwin song in B major, which is like pretty unusual. And I just watched him do it. And he just said, B major, okay, and he started off and just went into it. He played it beautifully. And I'm going, man, this is amazing. And so these, he, he was, these are Facebook streams, but he, um, they get, well, go to YouTube after they've been on Facebook. And that's how, I've, how I access them because I've been going, doing a lot of YouTubing mm-hmm. uh, during COVID just as a way of you know, fertilizing and my, uh, my creative juices if you like and um you know just checking out what's going on and it's been nice apart from that and i'm not going to get sidetracked onto what i was about to say and that is that i got in touch with him but that him and others have sort of talked whilst they've uh, been doing these things and it's been a, a really nice little community feel across the globe to have gone through COVID and and hear the thoughts of jazz musicians or you know other people of course but talking about it uh, in, in various ways, just the, the, the year that we had last year. Mm. But anyway, um, I ended up just putting comments because I'm one of those people, if I see something that I like or I hear something I like, I love to let the person know that I loved it or mm. I enjoyed it or I appreciate it. So I started putting comments and he got back to me and we had a little couple of little Facebook exchanges and he just said, look, once you've done a, a it sounds ridiculous, but once you've done about 100 jazz standards in all 12 keys, it just sort of becomes so incredibly easy. Mm. But this is obviously a very long answer to your question, but it's a good one. And it's been something that uh, I'm really grateful for in terms of COVID that I found Dan Tatfer and found, uh, found this um, inspiration to, 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 to play in a lot of keys. So I did do the solo in 12 keys. I haven't sort of kept it up, but I still play even have already today played parts of one of these pieces that I've been working on for so long in a whole lot of different keys. So it's become part of my practice. So it is a really, it's a really good thing to do. And just to finish off on that is really when you, when you've been playing jazz for a long time, there's only sort of maybe three keys really that you don't get to play in very often. That would be probably B, C sharp and F sharp or D flat and G flat, even though uh, the C sharp and F sharp or all the D flat and F, uh, G flat do, do factor actually quite heavily in jazz standards. Mm. But um, they're the ones, particularly in the minor keys, maybe if I said uh, not B minor, but um, C sharp minor and F sharp minor and maybe G sharp minor, some of these, there's just a few keys that are the ones that you tend not to get to play in particularly in a tonic key, very often that are the ones where you just go, oh, you know, when you come across a song that, that might modulate to those particular keys, you know, oh, here we go, here's those chords again that I don't feel as uh, quite as comfortable with as I do with, you know, A minor or 
mm. in any of the, the more obvious keys. So all I'm getting at is that, you know, once you've, once you've confronted these, and I don't feel like I've confronted them as much as I'd like, but I'm certainly better than I was. It's like, well, that's it. There's no other keys mm. to confront. So it's, it's, it's actually, it, 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 as I said, at the age of 63 for me, it's, um, it's a really good, been a really good process and I'm certainly going to continue down that path. Mm. Well, there's there's a pretty long answer to your question. Oh, thank you. I wanted to talk about how did you cope, you know, being a musician in the 2020 coronavirus pandemic? You went on the JobKeeper. Um, how's that been going for you financially as a musician? And how did you cope with the lockdown as well and the isolation? Yeah, well, um, I'm fortunate that... Uh, I have a wife that works and uh, our children have left home. And when, uh, when COVID first hit and the gigs just stopped, yes. like they stopped within a week, everybody I know, pretty much they just stopped within about a week or two. So gigs just dried up constantly, mm. completely rather. Um, I still was working at AIM and we went online and I still had some private students that I took online. So I had some income. But the gig gig income, which is is less than fifty percent for me, um, but still substantial, just dried up. But fortunately, my wife uh, was working, and you know we've we've uh, we've done we've been very sensible with our finances, so we mm. didn't have massive overheads. But she was fortunate in that uh, she was able to apply for JobKeeper at that time. Um, I wasn't sure about whether I qualified as a sole trader or whatever it was. And I, to be honest, I'm one of those people that I'd rather not take a handout if I could avoid it. Mm. So I didn't, didn't just jump on the bandwagon and try and, uh, uh, you know, get that happening. Not that I'm putting down anybody that did at all, but I just felt like I don't really feel like I need it. I would rather somebody more needy had it. Mm. But then my wife had a, just, even though I said she, she's work, she works and um, uh, I'm fortunate that we have a shared income, but that uh, she does, uh, she's a celebrant wedding and funeral celebrant. And that did die on the, uh, no pun intended there, uh, that dropped right off because of course the, the, the sizes of the crowds you're allowed to have at those events mm. were reduced to completely impractical proportions. So anyway, so there was a little period there we weren't earning as much as we might like, but we were doing okay. And then she ended up getting JobKeeper. Mm. At that time, as I said, I wasn't sure whether I qualified, but AIM put out an email to say, uh, we're going to apply for it. Would you like us to apply on your behalf? So I said yes. And then eventually, uh, even though initially universities were not uh, qualified for it, they ended up uh, somehow, AIM ended up being qualified for it or qualified. And uh, I did get job keeper. Mm -hmm for a number of months, but then that fell away. Um, but uh, <clears throat> my wife was still getting it till recently. She then picked up a whole lot more work and um, gigs have been trickling in. So we got through it okay. And, and, and on the broader subject of how did I deal with the lockdown, for quite a while, I really didn't mind too much, even though, of course, um, uh, it was, it was a drag that this was happening and that there were people getting ill and of course, occasionally dying, um, mm -hmm. particularly overseas, of course, it's been absolutely horrendous 
But in general, because musicians, as you would know, we're pretty solitary individuals. We practice on our instruments a lot. It really was a very natural fit for me. Mm-hmm. It was only, I did do a, I think the last gig I did was in March. And then I got offered a live stream on the strength of my uh, Facebook videos uh, in May. Mm-hmm. I did that. Then I got offered a one-off gig in about July. Um but in general, for that period between whatever it was, you know, March and September or October, when a few gigs started rolling in, it was was virtually, there were virtually no gigs. Um, but I was reasonably happy. And I also ceased getting together and playing with people. There's a couple of good friends of mine that come around, we would play music together. And because of the whole social distancing thing, I just felt like it wasn't the right thing to do. But at some point along the way, I felt like it was all right to do that, as long as we were careful. Mm-hmm. So I started playing again with my good friend Paul Mitchell Brown and Steve Elphick. One's a guitar player and the other's a bass player. And they both live close by, so they just come around and we just play in the lounge room. Have um, you, you yeah, gone yes. back to Adelaide or you you in Sydney still? No, I'm in Sydney. What do you mean by going back to Adelaide? Because uh, Did you uh, go back to Adelaide at one stage uh, before New Year's Eve? And then come back to Sydney and then... No, I did Melbourne. I might have told you about Melbourne. Oh, Melbourne. Yeah. I come from Adelaide originally, Uh uh, but I haven't been down there uh, during the COVID period. Unfortunately, my mother passed away uh, getting on two years ago now, and I did have to go down there many times Mm. uh, uh, over the course of the period of time following uh, her death and uh, to deal with family things and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I got, we, we had a big drought from going to Melbourne where my grand, my daughter and, and my two grandchildren live. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife used to go very, very regularly. I would go less regularly, but still regularly. Um, I think my wife had been in June. Uh, I'd been, I hadn't been since February, although they came up here, I think, at the tail, maybe in February as well. And then we got down. I, I, look, I lose track, Stephen, but I think it, it was, um, it must have been December, it's November or December. We got down for four days. Mm. And uh, we had a holiday uh, planned for Port, uh, Phillip Island for New Year's, uh, but then the Northern Beaches cluster kicked in here and suddenly the waters got closed again. So, we got a we, we broke our drought and had four days down there uh, in Melbourne and caught up with them all, which was wonderful, of course. But uh, we're now just sort of you know back to the closed border situation. Did you? But, have um, to, yeah, so I, on, go on. Did you have to uh, isolate for two weeks when you came back to Sydney? No, no, no. There was a there was a period where you could get down and uh, come back without any of that stuff. So no, we haven't had any isolation. We've just been you know given that. Uh, they, the general advice has been that if you're a little older, you you might run the mm. risk of, of of having a more severe reaction to COVID. Uh, even though I'm not in the 70 age group, obviously. But having said that, there's been many people of much younger ages that have had a terrible time with it. So all I'm getting at is that uh, even having said that due to our ages, we've, uh, we've been pretty cautious. I suppose it's just, we're just fairly straight ahead people and we just figured, seen enough evidence to think, no, I really don't want to go there, even though obviously, any, you know, an obvious example would be 
Peter Dutton got it or Trump got it and they, they're okay. I met somebody on the weekend that had, had it. They were still suffering a couple of um, mm. uh, minor uh, repercussions afterwards, but they seem to be doing okay. But, it, you know, last thing we really wanted to do that. So we've been uh, very cautious and uh, kept to ourselves a bit like a lot of people. But as I said, I wouldn't probably have as many of these love letter pieces or have the um, the sort of little, small little appreciation or fan base for, for, for my uh, solo piano music if it wasn't for COVID probably. I mean, I would, I imagine I would have probably done it, but probably would have, uh, it would probably would have um, proceeded in a different way. So that's, that's been a nice thing. And as I mentioned before, there's a lovely pianist called Tim Stevens in, um, in Melbourne who uh, he, he posted every day for like a hundred days or something. So um, there was him and there's also the well-known Paul Grabowski who I've um, known for many years um, fairly casually, but he posted stuff and like a regular Friday. And I was very chuffed not only to get very positive comments from both those two guys who I admire greatly Mm -hmm. And I've particularly been a fan of Paul Grabowski for a very, very long time. But I was also sort of, uh, when I chimed in on various posts, was sort of thanked by Paul for being part of the people that sort of put out some some nice music that, uh, you know, had a positive effect during the, during the, uh, the pandemic, or, you know, the sort of intense mm. time of the pandemic. So, you know, there's, there's been a lot of good that's come of it. And of course, as it, go, it probably goes without saying, but there was a period there where a lot of the flights weren't happening. And uh, where we live in Ashfield, mm. it was very noticeable, not only the, the, the sound of the planes and the sound of the cars dropped away, but the, the skies were so clear. I put up mm. a Facebook post one day saying, has anybody noticed how clear the skies are? Mm. So there's been, and I've, I've always been an environmentalist, very much, uh, conscious of the environment. So there's, and I know I'm not unique in that respect, and I'm not unique in, in, in pointing out that it's been a, a very interesting period of time for the planet to see what happens when suddenly people stop doing everything they were doing, mm. because a lot of what people were doing is not good for the planet. Mm. So it's been an interesting time. Of course, it's been absolutely terrible for countries like the US and uh, the UK and Brazil and I'm not going to embarrass myself and show my lack of awareness of wherever wherever else it's been bad but you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. um, and we've done it even though I know it's regrettable that uh, people have died here comparatively we've done pretty well yeah Italy was uh, hit hit the worst right yes at the start of the pandemic um, that's right yeah that's right it's been a very interesting time for human beings then Melbourne went into a second full lockdown. That's correct, of course. And now we've got restrictions where in, in Sydney you have to wear a mask in the shopping centre. That's the correct. Yeah, fine. I've been doing that. Yeah, you have to do that. We actually, interestingly, whilst we're on this subject, we went down to Kiama over the weekend, just got, took four days off because we had to post uh, cancel our other holiday to Victoria. And uh, I've got a whole different thing going on down there if you once you get out of the metropolitan area you don't have to wear a mask so mm. there's probably only about a five percent take up of masks down there which we were quite the first day we're going what's going on nobody's wearing a mask mm. and then my wife asked the shopkeeper and found out but yeah no i just think it, you know it's uh as i said earlier it's not it's just not worth the risk and and we want to do the right thing by the society um so yeah interesting times 
we, since you when uh, AIM went online, did, how did you find teaching um, lectures online uh, instead of in the classroom? Did you enjoy it more, or did you find it was a bit weird at first? Every I um, I'm trying to get the chronology of this right. Mm. We uh, we do trimesters at AIM, as you well know, and mm. the that was about halfway through trimester one that we had to uh, go online. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, uh, I mean, my, my, um, the subjects I usually teach are piano, contemporary piano. I was doing things like keyboard skills um, for many years, but I think in that first trimester, excuse me, I had some piano students, I had an ensemble. It's so long ago, it's maybe a year ago, I'm trying to remember what other subjects I was doing. Um, but anyway, um, I finished, what we had to do with the ensemble, which is obviously problematic, because we had to turn that into a recording project. Mm -hmm. So um, students had to um, record their own parts, and upload them. Fortunately, in each one of those classes, I had a student was um, okay enough with um, recording technology in terms of platforms such as um, Logic and Ableton, and uh, there's one called BandLab, which was mm -hmm. the recommended one. So the ensemble situation morphed from a traditional, we're all in a room together, I'm rehearsing everybody, stopping and starting or doing whatever and advising practicing sections, whatever, to suddenly a class once a week uh, online mm. where uh, we would choose songs and discuss uh, the songs and then the kids would uh, submit their or would record their parts and then upload them and then I would give them feedback and all of that. That was probably out of the... If I, if I zoom forward to... Uh, 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 trimester two and three, uh, I kept the ensemble classes. I had piano students, and then I picked up a oral training class. The ensembles right throughout worked okay, mm -hmm. but not ideal. Mm -hmm. Not ideal. Uh, but it, I, it was, it was. I think the kids got enough out of it. And of course, one of the positive things was that a lot of kids got. Uh, recording experience that they otherwise wouldn't have had. So that was a positive. The piano side of things, and I also moved, as I said earlier, my, all my private home students online, mm. um, was surprisingly okay once I found a platform that worked. And before we were pushed into using Teams exclusively, which we were, I think, maybe... I think I used, I found FaceTime actually worked the best for me. I tried Zoom. I tried Messenger mm. uh, by Facebook. Um, FaceTime, obviously, there might have been one. WhatsApp I tried once. I found FaceTime because everybody has it mainly. That, that worked okay. And then I just moved on to Teams, which is okay as well, Microsoft Teams. Mm -hmm. So the piano lessons weren't bad. Um, and as I said, I did my private people uh, that have come back now. And I mean, the only thing that happens occasionally you get some, you know, just might freeze for a minute or whatever, but you can't really play simultaneously, but that doesn't ever tend to be a problem too much. Mm. The oral training class, 
uh, worked quite well. The only difficulty was um, doing assessments and the final exam. I mean, the transcript, there's two assessments. One was a transcription assessment and um, that's pretty straightforward. They just submitted the transcription. So that didn't really change much, but um, the, the, the oral exam, which would normally be done with me <clears throat> sitting at a keyboard in front of a, a class and playing intervals and chords and things like that, that uh, had to be changed to me doing a, um, an audio file, yeah. sending them in a, a PDF of the, of the exam and then having to complete it uh, in, a, in, a, in a given time. Uh, but we've done a couple of those now and they're, they're not bad. You know, the Teams thing is, is pretty good for that. So you, it worked okay. Yeah. yeah. You going back to aim this year to teach online, or is it still uh, uh, not on on campus, or do you is it still going to be online for the first trimester? That's a question that we all have, and um, I actually bumped into a couple of my colleagues on the weekend, and we were all discussing that. But there's a a, a, a um, where are we Wednesday tomorrow? There's a big staff meeting in there. I'm actually going to go into there, go in there face to face for the first time since March. Mm. Uh, so that's probably my number one question. Prior to the Northern Beaches um, uh, cluster, it looked like we were. Um, the only email I've had that that, um, that references the situation seems had a positive tone about it. Seemed to suggest that we we may well be moving uh, back to face to face for most classes. I think they're going to keep a few online because some things have they, they have actually have advantages in being mm. online. But um, yeah, I, I suspect we are. But uh, that's going to be clarified tomorrow. Mm, no, hopefully things get back to normal. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, you know, as anybody that's um, been keeping up with the situation, as I'm sure most people are, <clears throat> it, it seems to me to be a, um, an ongoing process where people are working stuff out as they go along. I mean, if you recall right at the very beginning of the pandemic, even um, Anthony Fauci, the American guy, was questioning uh, the effectiveness of the masks. Mm. And within a very short space of time, he said, you should be wearing masks. But mm. that's just an example of the way that people have been trying to work this out. Um, so I still, I still see the way it is at the moment as being a bit like that, even though obviously we're a lot further down the track and we have vaccine rollouts happening at the same time. So it's, you know, the thing is moving, it's progressing. The contact tracing, mean, I can only really speak to Australia, of course, but the contact tracing thing is well established. Like all of the places we went to in Kaima, even though the masks weren't mandatory, they, they would ask you straight away to sign in before you even did anything. Mm. So there's, you know, there's, there's structures in place that are enabling us to, uh, to deal with this whilst allowing society to continue to function. And of course, we've got the, the vaccines coming up the rear, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think they're looking at rolling those out late Feb, March here. So, you know, yeah, I, I mean, you know what I'm saying? We, if you look at it a year ago, that it hardly happened. Now we're here, hopefully within a year's time, which, you know, it's a long time, but realistically, you know, we will have moved through the thing, mm. one would hope. Um, I certainly don't feel like getting a vaccination straight away, but um, I'll certainly will when it feels appropriate. Um, but yeah, let's hope. 
I was going to mention about that because a hundred years ago there was the Spanish flu in Australia. Yes, yeah. Yep. There was no vaccine for that as well. Right. I think uh, people just built uh, immunity to it. I wouldn't take a fresh batch of vaccine straight away. No, that's how, exactly how I feel. I'm 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 not an anti-vaxxer. I grew up in the '60s and the '70s, and we all had inoculations and we inoculated our children. Mm-hmm. I think that's been one of the one of the problems with this is that a lot of um, a lot of younger generation are not being down on them, but they they don't realise the, the 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 sort of relative luxury that we've had for a long, long time of certain illnesses being eradicated through vaccines. Like when I went to school, we would see kids with calipers on their legs from polio. Wow. I mean, that, that's not something that somebody of your age would ever have seen. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, battling the people that want their freedoms and uh, the complaining that they're being locked down, which is of course difficult, but comparatively had a pretty good run uh, in terms of, you know, Diseases, even though in some countries, obviously, some of those diseases that we've eradicated in Western countries still are still uh, happening. Mm. But yeah, no, just my my instinct is that you know, I mean, most in all of the information I've seen that's come my way about vaccines, they tend to usually take you know three to four years to develop, and mm. uh, we're talking about having something developed within ten or eleven months. I'm not a big fan of the idea of putting that in my body at this stage, mm. but as you're probably aware. Um, there was discussions um, on the weekend about perhaps making it mandatory for you to enter certain venues and things uh, like, like having to have a vaccination before you could get in. Mm. So if that, if it becomes like that, we'll have to, we'll have to rethink, um, you know, how we feel about taking vaccines. Mm. It's a bit weird to be honest with you, you know, yeah, look, I mean, everybody's got a person. I'm, I'm just one of those people. I don't like to take a tablet for anything. If I've got a headache, I certainly don't suddenly pop a Panadol. I just, I'm not, just not a big fan of, of introducing anything to my body um, unless I really, really have to. See, uh, and I mean, yeah. You lived in a time where uh, there was the there was the Asian flu, wasn't it? Did you, li- you live uh, through I, look, to be honest, I don't remember much about that. I mean, I certainly, I thought you were going to say AIDS and I do remember AIDS quite, <laughs> yeah. quite, uh, quite clearly in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, was the SARS, the yeah. SARS one, which was, God, I don't know, what was that, 15 or 16 years ago or something? Was that the pandemic at the time? HIV. SARS? Oh, HIV? Yes. No, it's not a pan, I, look, I don't, I'm not a medical person at all uh pandemic i think is something that really can affect anybody in the population i would suspect mm. whereas hiv when it first happened was uh more uh related to the gay community mm-hmm. um obviously heterosexual people could get it of course but it was a, a bit more confined to that community i don't know much about it other than that um it was devastating mm-hmm. And I was only recounting to my wife recently seeing, you know, images of like Rudolf Nureyev, the famous dancer before he died and he'd, he'd got AIDS and he looked just so, so awful, mm. really tragic. Um, in fact, uh, a jazz pianist I mentioned earlier, being one of my favourites, Fred Hirsch, 
uh, was one of the first jazz musicians to come out as gay and uh, mm. I can't quite think when that was. That would have been maybe the mid 80s or something. Uh, he, he was HIV positive. Mm. Um, and I've read his autobiography in uh, the last year or so. And he was just talking about how horrendous it was seeing so many of his friends and colleagues just die. Mm. So that was terrible. And there was a very famous commercial on the TV at that time, which showed a, uh, a bed full of syringes with the needles pointing up mm. and uh, somebody laying out a sheet on the top so that when the sheet finally sort of settled, you could see all these uh, pointy syringes, you know, and it was basically saying that uh, if you're going to have sexual relations with anybody, you could well be, um, you know, the, the potential for that for many needles to have been shared was great, very great. So, you know, that was that was a pretty dramatic ad to run on the TV. And there are other ones, I don't know, I think there were Grim Reapers and things. Uh, it was, re you know, really tragic, tragic situation at the time. But of course, now um, it's not life-threatening now. And mm. uh, Fred Hirsch is still in 65, 64, 65 now. And um, he's lived, lived a, I mean, he's had some health issues, but he's uh, living a good productive life, still, still active. And so, yeah, that's not what it was, but I don't think that was ever a pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's Freddie Mercury uh, from Queen died of uh, HIV. Correct. Yeah, yep. Very correct. singer, in my opinion. That's correct, yes, yes. Uh, there would be others, I think, Rock Hudson, the actor, who, uh, you know, of course, was uh, such a, uh, a, a sort of a male sex symbol. Nobody knew he was gay, I think, till the end. And yeah, he, he died of that, as far as I know. I think that's correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Tim, it was a fantastic show with you today. Pleasure, mate. It's lovely. It's lovely chatting. Um, where can people find you on social media or contact you? Uh, as I said on the last one, just pretty much Facebook. I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, old school with all of that. Uh, as I think I also said, uh, once I have this new recording out, I'm just, I'm going to get my own website and put up some stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to that actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at this stage, yeah, just just Facebook. I think even my mobile number's there somewhere. Uh, certainly, they can contact me via uh, private message or or um, you know through Facebook. Sweet. Uh, as, as is obvious, there's um, quite a few clips of me playing my pieces on there, mm -hmm. and lots of other things I love putting up. Uh, you'll see there's quite a bit of political stuff when I lean to the left. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's also a lot of, you know, when I see a great piece of music or a great performance, I put that up there. So there's quite a lot of stuff up there that, that might be of interest to other musicians. Yeah. 